Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the fourth in a series of podcasts over the coming weeks promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launch December 22nd. Registration to join Lommer's Legion is now open. Visit www.seminolewars.us for details. In 1963, land developer Frank Lommer and Clearwater attorney William Goza, joined by a St. Leo College student, Jim Beck, decided to take a little hike in the country, tracing the path of Major Dade's ill-fated column from Tampa to present-day Bushnell, Florida. The trek attracted many camp followers and a few members of the news media. The men had successfully reestablished a working trail that mirrored that of Major Dade in 1835. They donated copies of their maps to the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in Bushnell and to the Florida Historical Society in Cocoa. These maps eventually formed the foundation for Jerry Morris and Jeff Huff's book, The Fort King Road, Then and Now, the most popular and best-selling book in the Seminole Wars Foundation's history. Everyone who signs up for the Major Day Memorial March to Fort King Virtual Challenge receives a copy of this book. Following their excursion, William Goza dedicated himself to drafting an account of their motivations, planning, and many-day journey to the site of what was then still called the Dade Massacre. The product of that work became a short booklet, The Fort King Road, 1963. William Goza, who died in 2008 at 90, lived a long and prosperous life as an attorney and municipal judge after serving honorably as a battery commander during World War II. But his true passion traced a different route, that of Florida history and forensic science. Twice president of the Florida Historical Society, William Goza was a lifelong student of the Seminole Wars and a board member of the Seminole Wars Foundation. He participated in many Dade battle talks and in the acquisition of the Henry Prince Seminole War Diary at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Mr. Goza participated in the investigations of the circumstances surrounding the deaths of President and one-time Florida War Commanding General Zachary Taylor, of the Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro, and of Joseph Merrick, the so-called Elephant Man. This work in forensics is believed to have influenced his good friend Frank Lommer to seek answers about Dade battle survivor Ransom Clark by having Clark's remains exhumed and examined by a professional pathologist. The pathologist, with no knowledge of who Ransom Clark was or why he was being examined, confirmed that all Private Clark had stated about his battle wounds was true. Frank Lommer petitioned the Veterans Administration to install a new headstone for Private Clark. He himself acquired the legacy marker and soon donated it to the Tampa Bay History Center, where it is on display to this day. The virtual challenge begins on the map a few steps away from the Tampa Bay History Center. 
In this episode, as part of our continuing presentations about the old Fort King Military Road, in preparation for our December 22nd launch of our Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King Virtual Challenge, we present an adaptation of William Goza's 1963 Fort King Road book. Although Mr. Goza's passed away, along with Frank Laumer, we do have a participant from that 1963 march still living today. Frank Laumer's son, Christopher, walked part of that route with the men when he himself was 12 years of age. It is our distinct pleasure to welcome Chris to our podcast to read the first-person portions of William Goza's account of the first march to specifically mark that trail, noting key points along the route since Major Dade himself trod it with his doomed 108-man detachment of artillery and infantry soldiers in 1835. We now present William Goza's The Fort King Road, 1963. In 1825, the territory of Florida was sparsely settled and little traveled. Fort Brooke, named for its first commander, Colonel George Mercer Brooke, and located where the Hillsborough River meets the old Tampa Bay, was a scant two years old. In that year, Indian agent Colonel Gad Humphreys established an agency near the present city of Ocala, preceding by some two years the occupation of Fort King on a nearby knoll. Realizing the need to connect its outposts by overland routes, Congress approved $12,000 to build a road from the northern boundary of the territory to Fort Brooke. The road was not constructed, but in 1825, a military road was started with the blazing of a trail north of Fort Brooke. Improvements followed later, and what had been known as the Military Highway became the Fort King Road. The Fort King Road crosses the Withlacoochee River only a few miles east of my weekend cottage. My interest in the route was strong, but my interest became intensified toward the end of 1962 when I met Frank J. Lommer, a Dade City land developer who lives only about a mile from the site of the crossing. I met Lommer through our mutual friend, Father Jerome, Dean of Florida Historians at St. Leo College, and found he had become interested in establishing the site of Fort Dade on the Wistikuchi River as a result of his research on the Second Seminole War and the life of Zachary Taylor. Records from the War Department and National Archives revealed Fort Dade was located on the south bank of the Withlacoochee River, where it intersected the Fort King Road. An exhaustive and intensive search of the area with a mine detector turned up large iron hinges, which were determined to be supports for a stockade gate, a curry comb, a candle snuffer, handmade nails, and part of a balance scale were among other items that were unearthed. Although the accuracy of the location of Fort Dade's site was verified by Dr. William H. Sears of the Florida State Museum and other qualified personnel, the usual range of old wives' tales discredited the effort with solemn assertions that the spot Frank Lommer designated was many miles from where my grandpappy said the fort was. We also found many references in secondary sources to, to locations for Fort Dade, which were not supported by War Department records. Many highly respected sources claim that Fort Dade was the site of the massacre of Major Francis Langhorn Dade, 1835. Even if Fort Dade had existed on that date, it would have been a somewhat remarkable coincidence if the redoubtable Major could have arranged the ambush of his command at a spot already named in his honor. Perhaps the most interesting thing about having history as a hobby is that it's a never-ending pursuit. One thing leads to another in this continuing search for the truth. 
With the Fort Dade site tucked safely in its map case, Romer decided to research the Dade Massacre, the first step of which would be to recreate the route of the Fort King Road from Fort Brook to the battle site. I was delighted when Mr. Lomer asked me if I would be interested in giving a hand to this undertaking. Maps and field notes of surveys made in the 1840s, when the Fort King Road was still in existence and still in use, were obtained from the office of Doyle Connor, Florida Commissioner of Agriculture. They showed the section, township, and range through which the road to Fort King passed and gave some physical characteristics of the land. Appropriate field notes from the United States surveys for the sections gave the distance in chains from the corner of the north section to the road, from opposite boundaries of the section. Then, in order to relate this information to present-day development and improvements, Frank Lommer obtained geological survey maps from the United States Department of the Interior. To cover the route from Fort Brook to the massacre site, about two miles southwest of Bushnell, required 12 of such maps each about two feet long. To ensure the accuracy of the route as transported to the modern maps, the two men attained a rare good luck in the person of Elmer Mullins, a Dade City surveyor. Mullins coupled professional qualification with an interest in the historical aspect and promptly volunteered his services. Next came the laborious task of transferring the old to the new, the surveys of the 1840s to the modern maps of the 1960s. Of course, the newer maps indicated many changes in the use of the land, showing even the smallest buildings which had been erected when the map was made, but land contours were unchanged, and the route as laid out on the modern map still coursed around the same ponds and others, which had not been shown on the earlier maps. These followed generally the route, which would avoid extreme lows and highs of altitude, so as to give the best available level route to facilitate marching and moving of supplies. Now, spot checks were in order. They obtained a 1959 aerial photograph of the Lacucci area, and from it, the men could see the dark line of the trail in the photograph, following the slow spirals of the Fort King Road, as it appeared on tracings on the geological survey map. The men made short trips to selected areas to confirm their belief that the reconstructed maps were accurate. At this point began the germination of the idea to march along the route sometime in December 1963 the same month in which Major Dade had made his fateful march in 1835. We had expected to find agreement among those who had recounted the details of the so-called Dade Massacre, but here also we found many conflicting statements. The most reliable authorities seemed to occur that Francis Langhorn Dade and his command, numbering 108 men, set out from Fort Brook along the Fort King Road on December 23, 1835, outfitted as infantry and equipped with a six-pound cannon, intending to relieve the undermanned garrison at Fort King. On the morning of December 28th, about 65 miles out of Fort Brook, Seminole Indians, under the leadership of Micanope, opened fire upon them from the cover of pine woods and palmettos, killing all but three of the enlisted men. Editorial note, although only three enlisted men survived, there was a battle that ensued. They weren't all felled in the first attack. Together with the murder of Indian agent Wiley Thompson and others at Fort King, within a few hours of the date attack signaled the outbreak of the Second Seminole War, which lasted nearly seven years and was the most costly of all Indian wars fought by the United States. 
We decided at the outset of our march along the route of the Fort King Road would not be a physical fitness test nor survival or endurance test, but was to be a serious attempt to see if traces of the Fort King Road still existed. We also wanted to travel the route at about the same time Major Day traveled it. We were hopeful that if the march attracted any attention at all, it would interest the people of Florida in an important period in the history of our state. I was satisfied with our decision that we were not going to prove our physical capacity for endurance. For at 46 years of age, I found myself eight years older than the oldest of Dade's men. A number of individuals of varied interests and occupations expressed their desire to accompany us on at least a part of the march and we welcomed all. Two of Lamar's children, Christopher, age 12, and Valerie, age 14, who had developed an interest in the project from hearing it discussed, intended to make part of the trip. Frank also decided that he would include the family's 10-year-old collie, Amos. This was not without some historic precedent, since Captain G.W. Gardner's dog had accompanied his master on the ill-fated march. According to some accounts, the return of that wounded canine to Fort Brook was one of the first signs of disaster that the Fort Brook garrison had received. In order to assure the public of the seriousness of their plans and to make available to the organization the results of their research and efforts, William Goza solicited sponsorship for the project from the Florida Historical Society at the semi-annual meeting of its board of directors at the University of South Florida in Tampa on December 7th 1963 the society readily and unanimously gave its consent we felt we had closed our efforts with professional respectability by the endorsement of this venerable organization but we were cognizant also of our responsibility to maintain our efforts in the field of professional historical research the march begins we decided it would be pointless to begin our march in downtown Tampa at the actual site of Fort Brook, since the city is now so developed that there would be not only be a lack of evidence of a semblance of a trail, but it would be impossible to follow the route because of the many buildings. We decided to begin the march at 1 p.m. on December the 19th at the northwest corner of Franklin Junior High School in Tampa. Our calculations showed that the Fort King Road had crossed this spot, and we surmised Major Dade might have arrived at about the same hour of the day in his march out of Fort Brook. Though the personnel of this 1963 command varied from time to time during the trip, the starting group included Frank Lommer, William Goza, Joe Geiger, a teacher from Dade City High School, who also taught at St. Leo College, and, of course, Amos, their mission mascot. The adventure had attracted some press notices. The St. Petersburg Time had carried a story with a picture of Frank Lommer and me on the shores of the Withlacoochee examining maps had given us advance coverage. We did not realize, however, even from this initial indication of interest by the news media, that our undertaking would attract so much attention. We found, as we plotted along, that interest increased in geometric proportions. The starting point was still in a fairly congested area of Tampa, so the route could not follow the almost exact northeasterly direction indicated. The site of the Fort King Road lies southeast of the Garden of Memories and the Centro Espanol cemeteries, then cuts across the northeasterly corner of a subdivision to reach tall grass and scattered gnome-like trees. From there, the general vicinity of the trail was less densely settled, and for the first time out of Tampa, the party had the feeling of marching cross-country. The land began to assume a gentle, rolling appearance, and after crossing Lake Avenue, they encountered a citrus grove, which continued beyond Hillsborough Avenue at a point about three-fourths of a mile east of the Atlantic coastline overpass. 
about a quarter of a mile north of Hillsboro Avenue. The road meets again and coincides almost exactly with Lake Avenue for approximately one mile into the small settlement of Harney, at which point it veers sharply to the west and away from the northeast course of their route. I've hardly left the road about 5 p.m., remaining on the trail, approaching the Little Hillsboro River where the elevation of the route dipped. We spotted an abundance of large oaks at the place where the road crossed over. As darkness began to enshroud us, we realized it was here that Major Dade and his command had spent the first night out from Fort Brooke. Earlier that day, Major Dade had sent a message to Major Belton, the commander back at Fort Brooke, that he had abandoned the six-pounder cannon four miles from the fort due to the failure of the oxen. Dade asked for assistance in bringing the cannon forward to him. Major Belton had complied with the request, and the six-pounder arrived at about 7 p.m. that evening. At nearly the same hour, the 1963 command settled down to an evening meal composed of canned tuna and peaches. The present-day group received augmentation here with the arrival of Frank Lommer's children, Chris and Val, and of Jim Beck, a St. Leo College student who was to prove his worth many times during this trip. As the 1963 version of the Dade Command settled around a cheerful campfire, the temperature began to drop, which would take it down to the middle 30s. But spirits were high as Frank Lama read aloud the article, Florida Aflame, by Dr. Mark F. Boyd from the July 1951 Florida Historical Quarterly. Gradually, as the conversation and the campfire died down, the members of the group huddled in their bedrolls in a futile attempt to keep warm with only fitful snatches of sleep. At 6 a.m., we were all awake, but it was too cold to think of breakfast, so we assembled our equipment, packed our bedrolls, and resumed our march by 7 o'clock. The Little Hillsborough River no longer connects to the Hillsborough River, about 300 yards to its west, since the road ray dams it off, but formerly it drained the so-called Harney Flats into the larger waterway. We made the crossing by leaving the trail to go about 100 feet west to the railroad bridge, then returned on the other side of the location of the original roadway. Daylight confirmed our belief that we had correctly located the site of the crossing. About a half mile north of Harney, the trail crosses the railroad and the highway. Then, approximately another half mile north from the highway, it turns northeasterly again and parallels the highway on its northwesterly side for about four miles. The countryside here is pleasant and rolling, but with hills of such little consequence that the engineers laying out the old road did not even take them into consideration, but merely crossed over them. There are few dwellings in this locality, but there are several small citrus groves from five to 10 acres in size. There was still no evidence of the trail, but the physical characteristics of the land matched the symbols on their maps and assured them that the route was correct. The party now paused for breakfast, consisting of such delicacies as canned tuna and dried fruit. This proved less an enjoyment than the ease its consumption afforded by lightening the packs. For now, tightening leg muscles gave evidence of the departure from flat terrain. The weather, however, was perfect for the undertaking, with a clear sunny sky and a temperature in the 50s. The route crosses US 301 and railroad tracks, again just north of Fowler Avenue, and then heads northeasterly for the northern tip of Lake Thanotasasa. 
Larger hills were now in evidence, and the walking was more difficult because it was through orange groves, which had recently been cultivated, and the sand was deep. One of the stories about Dade's march says the men stopped to rest near the lake and ate some Cuban oranges in their pack, dropping the seeds which then sprouted. One of the trees supposedly is still standing, transplanted in 1846 to the homestead of William Miley. Some say that many of the groves in that section grew from seeds dropped by military expeditions along the Fort King Road. The remaining miles to the Hillsborough River crossing were among the most difficult of the entire trip. The forty flatlands which lay ahead were coursed by swamplands and scattered pines with range cattle eyeing suspiciously the intrusion of their domain. The course of the old road veered now to the east, and it was evident that the engineers had planned the road in this portion with reference to the course of the Hillsborough River, paralleling it until they could find a proper location for crossing. The easterly course continued for about two and a half miles and then struck out northerly for about five miles over desolate countryside for its junction with the Hillsborough River. It was dark by the time we reached that spot, a few hundred feet east of the present-day intersection of US 301 and the Hillsborough River. We all agreed that Major Dade had covered a lot of territory in his second day out of Fort Brooke. Upon his arrival at the Hillsborough River, Major Dade found the Indians had burned the bridge, so he was delayed the next day in repairing it sufficiently to allow his troops, cannon, and equipment to pass over. We were glad, however, that no work faced us. We were welcomed to the Hillsborough River State Park by the park superintendent with whom we had corresponded in anticipation of our overnight stop. We decided to spend the second night of this journey at the park rather than at the site of the burned bridge. We would be only a few hundred yards from the actual place of Dave's camp, which is now located on privately owned property. Park Ranger Roy Gardner aided us in many capacities because we had been besieged by telephone calls to the park from various newspapers for reports of progress. Mr. Gardner, among his many other courtesies, introduced me over his park office telephone to Robert Thomas of Tampa, a owner of the Burn Bridge site. He was well informed on the history of this locality and not only discussed Dade's campsite with me, but invited us all to make a closer inspection of the property, promising to show us the spot where Fort Foster was located. Editorial note. Today, one can easily find the site of Fort Foster because the fort has been reconstructed and rests within the confines of the Hillsborough River State Park. Gardner told us that Thomas's father had donated the property which now comprises the Hillsborough River State Park to the state of Florida. We decided to spread our bedrolls just outside the park area to accommodate Amos, since dogs are not permitted in the park overnight. The lumber children left at this point after a long, grueling day. Although they seemed none the worse for the trip, they said they had thoroughly enjoyed the experience. While Jim Beck stoked the log fire higher and higher, we, as the temperature dropped into the low 40s, conversation lagged and it was replaced by heavy breathing as our second day out of Fort Brooke came to a close. One of the most pleasant surprises of our trip came when we woke at 6.15 a.m. We had expected to partake again of the canned delicacies in our packs, but instead found ourselves invited for a hot breakfast at Ranger Gardner's home in the park. We were met at breakfast by Elmo Collins, a Day City Junior High School teacher who joined us at this point. We realized that Major Dade's command had, by authority of most accounts, remained two nights at Hillsborough River, but we saw no point in marking time to follow his schedule exactly since we were not attempting a literal reenactment of his march. We decided that our purposes would be served if we pushed ahead, facetiously remarking that if we followed the Major Dade's example too closely, we might walk into an ambush by Indians up the line. Editorial note. The authority of most accounts 
was mistaken. Major Dave spent only one night at each location. The Lamargoza party was correct in plotting on rather than remaining. Plus, it helped to avoid an ambush by Indians at that time. Major E.S. Belton's account of Dade's march states that the command probably did not make over six miles on the day of their march from the Hillsborough River. And then on the next day, they marched across the big Withlacoochee River, across the little Withlacoochee River, within four or five miles of the massacre site. We felt that we were now informed sufficiently by experience to know that this was impossible, since a command that had moved only about one mile an hour could not possibly have marched approximately 30 miles between sunup and sundown on December 27, 1835. We were determined to make camp for our third night near Dade City, where local legend has it that Dade had encamped near a small body of water, now called Lake Hester. We started our march at a little before 8 a.m., crossing to the east of U.S. Highway 301 and entering the woods on the north side of the Hillsborough River. We quickly found the location of the Fort King Road crossing, since the road was used up into the early 1930s, according to Robert Thomas, by hunters, fishermen, campers, and poachers. The road now followed a course slightly to the west of north, crossing Highway 301 only a few hundred feet from the railroad crossing, now called Glenel Station. We followed the trail without seeing any evidence of its prior existence. As we followed over the highway, several motorists blew their horns, letting us know that we were recognized. As we continued our travels, it seemed as though we were strangers to no one. We were now in flat pasture land with scattered pine trees and evidence of a creek to our west where the growth was heavier and the sweet gum and bay trees were everywhere. We finally picked up our first sign of the Fort King Road. Evidently, it was still being used for light backwards traffic to some extent, and it followed exactly the course as known on our map. We continued on the trail for about three miles, crossing an occasional pasture with deference shown us by the cattle because of the presence of Frank's collie, Amos. The trail faded, but low ridges indicated the location of the road to be coinciding with our maps. We arrived at State Highway 54 at a crossing about two miles west of Zephyr Hills at 12.30 p.m. Joe Geiger left us here since he had examination papers to grade, but he would rejoin us on our last morning of the hike. Frank Lommer, Jim Beck, Elmo Collins, and I continued on slightly east of north with our route as marked on the map following the level route on the ground. Avoiding comparative extremes of altitude and depression, we were on higher ground again and trees appeared in thicker groves. When we stopped for lunch, we checked our map and saw that we had about seven miles of hard, hilly marching ahead before we could reach our camp that night. A short road bearing northeasterly brought us into contact with a paved back route road from Zephyr Hills to Dade City, known as the Fort King Road. But with the exception of three more crossings of the old road before reaching Dade City, there is no coincidence of route. Passing through the rear section of the Cunningham Estate subdivision, we had our picture taken by Miss Nell Woodcock for the Tampa Tribune. Then we started out through hilly, freshly cultivated groveland. Our route was a little north of east. Leaving the citrus grove, we passed through a beautiful woodland where the route of all fourteen road was clearly visible, threading its way between ancient oaks. This was one of the areas where Frank Lommer and Elmer Mullins had made a spot check for a section line a few months earlier, and they killed a 30-inch coral snake while they were at it. We saw no snakes at all on our trip since they were not generally in evidence during the colder weather. Crossing the western edge of Bird Lake, we moved through a desolate area of dead dog fennels and sedge-like weeds. Noting on the west side of our trail, some few hundred feet away, a huge dead 
tree with literally hundreds of large buzzards <laughs> perched upon it and flying around it. This spot known locally as Buzzard's Roost. Frank Lommer and William Goza discussed that eerie sight. Frank recalled the diary of James Duncan, an officer of General Gaines' troops, who came upon Dade's command nearly two months after they had lain unburied at the massacre site. Wrote Duncan, The vultures rose in clouds as the approach of the column drove them from their prey. Very breastwork was black with them. Some soared over us as we looked upon the scene before us, whilst others settled upon the adjoining trees, awaiting our departure in order again to return to their prey. Jim Beck, the student mentioned earlier, was from Dayton, Ohio. He was not familiar with these Florida buzzards, thinking instead that they were huge crows. Possessing more energy and curiosity than Frank Lommer, Elmo Collins, or William Goza, Jim Beck charged toward the dead tree, and the sky was soon black with vultures circling above them. Ahead now emerged one of the most beautiful scenes along the route, but it also involved some of the party's most difficult terrain for marching. A broad, grass-lined valley with gnarled and ancient oaks led on to citrus groves situated on hills with an elevation of over 200 feet above sea level, an uphill climb of about 100 feet in less than a mile. The old route skirted the summits of the hills, but the walking was difficult through newly plowed land as they aimed just to the west of the tree-bordered home of Dr. W.H. Walters, Dade City physician and member of the Confederate Roundtable. The roadway then turned slightly to the northeast, nearly a quarter of a mile west of the home of State Senator D.D. Covington, beyond which the descent of the hills becomes more pronounced. Maps showed that they would cross a dirt road and that the old road would pass directly through a house which would stand at the southern tip of Lake Pasadena. And sure enough, there it was. Our only difficulty was that about four vicious-looking dogs began barking at us, and Amos was the only member of our party who spoke their dialect. As we were debating whether to forsake briefly our historic mission to skirt this portion of the road, an elderly gentleman called to us in front of the house, welcoming us and ordering the dogs back. He introduced himself as J.F. Hammett. He said that he had been expecting us since he knew that the Fort King Road passed through his property. His only regret, he added, was that his grandson had been waiting with him to welcome us and had left just a few minutes before. Mr. Hammett gave us some of his delicious tangerines and we filled our canteens with sparkling cold tap water. We admired the massive oak trees which lined the route of the old road and Mr. Hammett told us that two of them had been estimated to be over 300 years old. The party ascended another hill through an orange grove to the northeast for approximately a half mile on the east shore of Lake Pasadena, then cut the southeasterly corner of Pasadena Shores subdivision to cross the present-day Fort King Road again. There, Elmer Mullins met them in his truck and told them he had tied a few bright streamers on fences ahead at the exact survey point where the road passed. He had also hauled in some light-hard knots and firewood. Our route still lay uphill, behind some houses, fronting on the new Fort King Road, one of which we knew to be owned by Frank Massey, another member of the Dade City Confederate Round Table. As we passed back of the house, owned by Mr. and Mrs. Earl Crowley, we were beset by several members of his family, some of their neighbors all armed with shotguns, rifles, pistols, sabers, baseball bats, and garden tools in a good-natured ambush. Since they were not Seminoles, we decided they must be some sort of home guard or militia, trigger-happy to try out their weapons. 
Mr. Crowley confirmed our belief that the road had passed immediately back of his house and the level roadway was still plainly visible for the contours were unchanged by more than a century of use. The party was now about two miles from their day's destination as the shadows were beginning to lengthen. Crossing another pasture, they emerged just east of the intersection of the new Fort King Road and Highway 52S, which connects US 301 with the Handcart Road, the title of which itself invites research. Crossing both roads, they proceeded just west of north, back of some small houses, through more pasture, then uphill again through Groveland. We passed through one section where dead citrus trees were stark white with all the bark peeled off, lonely sentinels to remind us of the hard freeze of December 1962. Tall, lean pipes of irrigation sprays called attention to the feeble attempts of man to control nature. The Pasco County Fairground lay on our left to the west and we passed close to the New Day City High School thinking that it would be appropriate to erect a marker there. Describing its proximity to the Fort King Road, it was now downhill and darkening to the north of the two Lake Hesters, where our campfire would be awaiting the mat. So we hitched our pack a bit higher and crossed the last fences to our bivouac. A cheery fire was soon ablaze as my wife, Sue, arrived with a wonderful dinner for all of us. The press, too, was on hand, and flash bulbs exploded brilliantly as we recalled some 17 or so miles of our day's travel. We bade our visitors good night at around 10 o'clock, but just as we crawled into our bedrolls, Jim Fleming of the Dade City Banner came up for a visit. We spent a delightful half hour with him, then zipped up our sleeping bags and had an excellent night's sleep. Jim Beck, as usual, had stoked the fire to magnificent heights, and just before we dozed off, we saw the shadowy outline of the stone marker placed on the site by the local citizens to commemorate another night 128 years before. The following morning, Sunday, Mrs. Marge Edenfield of Dade City awakened the party at 6.15 a.m. for a friendly visit and armed with steaming hot coffee. The route through Dade City ran almost due north from their campsite through the grounds of the new addition to Pasco High School and just west of the hospital along 16th Street extending through Tommytown. We saw no point in marching through the limits of Dade City since it is so developed that an exact following of the route would have been impossible. Frank Lommer's wife transported us to the northern edge of the city to resume our travels, reinforced by hard-boiled eggs and toast she had brought us. The old Fort King Road continued to follow generally north with a slightly easterly bearing along present U.S. Highways 301-98, crossing those highways five times in approximately five miles. Then, about one half mile from the point where Highway 98 branches off to the west, the road begins an almost exact northeasterly course through Lacucci on the intersection of the road with the Withlacoochee River. This was the area of Frank Lommer's previous research, where the fort, named as a memorial to Major Dade, was located. The party diverted their course a few hundred feet west to cross the river on the Seaboard Airline Bridge, continuing in a northerly direction to meet the intersection of the railroad with the old Fort King Road, about a quarter of a mile north of the river. Since Frank Lommer and Elmer Mullins had made a spot check for the road, we had no difficulty in picking up the trail. Frank Lommer, Jim Beck, and I, the only three now in our party, agreed that this was one of the most clearly defined traces of the road and one of the most beautiful areas through which we had passed. 
where for about a mile in a northwesterly direction, we passed over level land of an elevation from 70 to 75 feet through blackjack oak and large pine trees, the clearly visible trail precisely following the contours on our map. This was the area where recent aerial photographs had revealed its path. This will be a wonderful property for the state to acquire for development as a woods trail, faithfully following the route of the Fort King Road. It would be as beautiful and attractive to tourists as the Appalachian Trail and other trails used for hiking, horseback riding, and sightseeing. The trail disappeared at a pasture fence line, and we had to guess the route for about a mile to a spot near where U.S. Highway 301 is intersected by Florida Highway 50 at Ridge Manor. By now, we had grown accustomed to the routing of the roadway around hills and away from low spots, so we felt sure that we could not have missed the road more than a few feet at most. The route lay west of the clubhouse for the golf course at Ridge Manor. We thought we would have a good chance of quickly picking up the trail again, so we split up to search for some encouraging sign. It was my luck this time to find the trail, and for the next two and a half miles, we enjoyed the pleasure of knowing that we were again traveling an unmistakable and clearly evident portion of the Fort King Road. We had one barrier along the way which did not exist in Dade's time, a man-made drainage ditch about 15 feet wide, filled with water, There was not enough room for a running start, and we were too heavily laden to jump across. As Frank Lommer and I were removing our boots and rolling up our trousers, we were startled by a roar and a splash and saw Jim Beck had charged booted and fully clad through the water to the opposite side. We laughed again when we saw Jim Beck and Frank's colleague Amos shaking themselves dry. The trail crossed Highway 301 about three miles north of Ridge Manor, and we continued on the old road for about a half mile, gradually coming back to a westerly direction to recross the present highway to its west side. We lost the trail at this point with only about a mile remaining between us and Little Withlacoochee River. The maps fooled us at this point for they showed many small lakes. The survey for the map must have been prepared during a much wetter year than we had experienced for we found the area devoid of water except for an occasional small pond. Because of our miscalculation, we went further to the west than we should have, futilely searching for some of the ponds shown on the maps. The area became wilder and the grasses were taller than any we had yet encountered. The trees were twisted and drawn. There were a number of very tall palmettos. After what seemed like an interminable and hopeless struggle through the brush, we finally emerged on the banks of the Little Withlacoochee. A picturesque turn of the river offered a peninsula for our dining location. So out came can openers and tins. And if I do say so myself, I don't believe I have ever paired a more delicious Triscuit sandwich. We knew we were west of where we would be, but steep banks, cypress trees and knees and extremely dense palmettos made travel along the river a perilous prospect. We finally reached a spot where the river seemed to correspond to contours to a place where our map showed the crossing should be. The river here was only about 25 feet wide, and we knew that we could swim it without difficulty. Our problem, however, would be to get all our map cases, pack, boots, and clothing across. Frank Lommer swam across first, leaving his equipment with me, and then Jim Beck heaved map cases and some equipment over to the other side. We filled a dead but solid small cypress tree, trimmed the limbs off, and we decided that I would try to balance my way across, steadied by stick, held out from each side by Frank and Jim. 
I was carrying not only my own pack, but had Frank's heavy field jacket over me, and I am sure Blondin felt less encumbered when he rode the bicycle on the tight wire across the Niagara Falls. After a couple of juggling antics, it looked as if we would make it, when suddenly the end of the cypress snapped, and it was all over for that trip. I believe the icy temperature of the water saved my life, for I would surely have sunk with all my equipment. But the water was so cold that I came right out of it with very little delay. We re-steadied the logs, and Jim pursued the more prudent idea of crawling across the log, balancing with a large floating log aside. The north bank of the Little Withlacoochee was not as dense in its growth as the opposite bank from which the party had just come, but it was more desolate, if possible, in appearance. They passed through the whitened cypress swamps, now dry from the lack of rain during 1962, with their moldy marks high on their trunks and looking strangely like targets. The temperature was fairly cold, but my discomfort consisted more in the squish-squish I felt and heard with each step I took. My companions were worried about me, for I had a sore throat at the outset of the march, but I felt fine now. A quarter-mile walk put us back on a trail that we hoped was our now elusive Fort King Road. We saw a jeep with a man and a woman in it driving along the road toward us. We hailed them and inquired for the location of the road, much to our delight and surprise within that we were on it. We introduced ourselves to Mr. and Mrs. Vernon Berry of Webster. He is a civil defense director of Sumter County, and they had come out looking for us. My luck now changed, for I found Mr. Berry had a complete change of clothes, except for socks and boots. In his vehicle, which he offered me, I quickly ducked behind our omnipresent palmettos and effected a quick change. The party continued on the trail through giant arches of oaks for about a mile, and then suddenly the trail disappeared into pastureland. A herd of cows, about 20, first eyed them suspiciously, then started following in a walk, which increased in pace and it began to look like it might become a stampede. At this point, Frank Lommer's dog Amos again proved his worth, and with a few loud yelps and a tossing of his Withlacoochee wet mane, started the cows off in another direction. We were now within a mile and a half of Dade's Breakfast Pond, the site of that night's bivouac, so-called because Dade and his men ate their last breakfast there. We had been pondering all afternoon a remark made by my wife the night before at Dade City when she said she heard a rumor that there would be a surprise for us, but a good one. She said that a Miami newspaper was planning something since the reporter had inquired if we were armed. It was an odd question, and we guessed that a mock massacre might be in the offing, and the reporter wanted to be sure we would not be startled into shooting someone. We were not armed, of course, and so we did not discount the possibility of an ambush ahead. With this in mind, we veered to the west of our normal course on the trail and slightly beyond the bivouac site, then cut back to the location of the Fort King Road. There we got the surprise of our lives. We came up behind a group of Seminole Indians in full colorful regalia, their chief wearing the plume on his headband. The leader, Howard Osceola, informed us that they had planned to surprise us on the trail, but we had outflanked them. We shook hands all around and told the chief that turnabout was fair play because the last victory had been won by the Indians. As we went on to our campfire on the shores of Dade's Breakfast Pond, we found that the Seminoles had been brought up from the Everglades by the Miami Daily News and its reporter Don Branning. A full-page news story, complete with pictures of the Seminoles, was the result and it appeared on the December 23, 1963 issue of the Daily News. Dade's Breakfast Pond has receded due to the drought but it was an almost perfectly round pond, apparently spring-fed to judge by its green color. It lies directly on the trail, 
and would have been a logical spot for an encampment, where it offered potable water and terrain suitable for defense. As silence settled around the campfire and we warmed our hands side by side with the Seminoles, we recalled their forebears who had resisted for so long the best our country could offer. We could no longer linger long in our meditation, however, for we found that Don Branding had a publication deadline and the Indians had a reservation, so they left us shortly after dark. On our list of Seminole words, sista means man and tutka means fire. So although we probably broke all the rules of the Seminole language, we christened Jim Beck Estatuskas, Man of Fire, in honor of his skill with a blaze. That night at Dade's Breakfast Pond, Jim Beck outdid himself. The photographer from the Daily News did not need flash bulbs for his pictures, and in the noon light pit glare, we'd discern many new faces around our campfire, including some who had been with us on the march in its earlier stages. Joe Geiger rejoined us, bringing his wife along to complete the march, and Elmo Collins was back with us, joined by his daughter Anne, a student at the University of South Florida. Frank's wife did the honors with food, and we enjoyed the baked ham and potatoes she brought. My wife joined us again, bringing along our miniature dash hound, Giggy, who was dwarfed by Amos. The visitors drifted away as the evening wore on, and the veterans of the march enjoyed repeating the jokes and stories which had been the most successful along the route. As we glanced down the slope, occasionally toward the pond, we thought of the 108 men who had looked in the same direction many years ago. About 4 o'clock in the morning of Monday, December the 23rd, by the noise of rainfall, the first we had encountered on our trip, Frank Lawmer and I decided to arouse the camp, now numbering 10, to roll packs, bedrolls, and seek the shelter of a barn nearby. The owner, Dave Davis, a lawyer from Bushnell, had been among those to welcome us the night before, so we felt sure there would be no objection to our using the shelter, particularly since Frank's daughter had rejoined us, as had Dr. Charles W. Arnotti's son, Frank. The rain became harder as we reached the shelter about 200 yards back down the trail, so we were glad we had made the decision to pack up. After a couple of anxious hours when the rain did not subside, Frank Lummer, Jim Beck, and I decided we would finish the last five miles even if we had to swim. As the eastern guys assumed a lighter state of gray-blue, we began the final stage of our march. Our travelers now included in addition to us our regulars Joe Geiger and Elmo Collins and newcomer Mrs. Lona Geiger. Lay northeasterly and in about half a mile across the Atlantic coastline tracks. It continued in the same direction until it crossed the present line of Highway 301, about three-fourths of a mile north of the railroad intersection with the highway at St. Catherine, and then along the east side of the highway for about another mile. The old road then turned almost due north to cross Highway 301 again, proceeding about three-fourths of a mile to the massacre site. We marched into the Dade Battlefield Memorial Park at exactly 9 a.m., close to the same hour that the massacre occurred on December the 28th, 1835. We followed the line of the Fort King Road to the marker with the inscription, Here Major Dade Fell. Then we turned to the recreation building in the park area. A hearty breakfast awaited us, and our wives and friends greeted us again. Park Superintendent John H. Hale had arranged the breakfast, which was prepared by Mrs. Hale and wives of park employees. C. Burton Marsh, clerk of the circuit court and a member of the park advisory board, acted as master of ceremonies. Mr. Marsh introduced Frank Lommer as the modern Major Dade. Frank made a few remarks, thanking all for their interest. Dr. Arnod, professor of history at the University of South Florida and member of the board of directors of the Florida Historical Society, then welcomed the group on behalf of the society and lauded the effort as authentic and worthwhile. 
Mr. Marsh then introduced each expedition member, together with the wives who were present. After a most enjoyable meal, the party retired with the press and cameramen for interviews and pictures. In addition to the newspapers already mentioned, there were representatives from the Wildwood Herald Express, the Ocala Star Banner, and several area newspapers. Frank Lommer and William Gosa pledged to mark copies of the maps with the Fort King Road route and present them to the Dade Battlefield Memorial Park and to the Florida Historical Society. With the passing years, the trail will disappear entirely unless some concerted effort is made to preserve at least a section of it. The land through which it traverses is privately owned, and the march of the bulldozers is joining forces with other signs of progress to obliterate this remaining vestige from a colorful page of Florida's past. Those of us who participated in the march along the Fort King Road will always have a feeling of kinship for the little command which perished in 1835, and we hope that we did them honor in reminding Floridians of their sacrifice. Chris Lommer, thanks for your powerful and emotional rendering of the words of William Goza about the Fort King Road, 1963. And thank you for joining us for The Seminole Wars. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.